Read it and weep. What Morrison's bastardry has cost all Australians. And Solomon's now a regime change target. Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 13th of May 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing uh, what Christine Holgate is up to and also uh, that how Australia is the one destabilising the Asia-Pacific region. Now, don't forget, if you like the show, hit the like button, subscribe, ring the notification bell to be updated of new shows and share this as widely as you can. And just before we get into the first topic today, uh, we wanted to make a final plug for all of our candidates across Australia and in particular the excellent job that they're doing getting the word out because whatever happens in this election, we're intending to get the leverage we need to get a postal bank among other things, but that's one of our really um, top goals, to organise people from all parties actually um, and people who get elected to have that at the forefront of their minds. We've, been, we've used this campaign to uh, really expand the education on that, Elisa. Our candidates are all out there in their blue shirts with, with their um, uh, supporters, spreading the word about the post office bank. Uh, we've done some great interventions, great public events, uh, but we said from the beginning, you know, because you can never, for a party like us, you can never predict the kind of vote we're going to get. But we see it, for, for us, an election campaign is a bit of a blip in, the, in the, um, the course of what we normally do because we'll be campaigning just as hard the day after the election mm. as we were the day before the election was called, right? Because we, we can influence any, par any, any parliament in terms of policy because we mobilise the public to get involved and do that. But this, this campaign has gone really well, as you can, people can see from the photos on the screen. Yeah, uh, and just to point out a couple of key things, um, and there's full reports on this in our weekly Australian Alert Service um, that we um, put out. Um, so we had, this, this is one event which is worth looking at the pictures of. You see the uh, audience of over 400 people there, which um, Jan Pacallis, our Senate candidate in Queensland, addressed was a Voting Matters community forum held in Springwood and Jan got a really stunning applause after her address, again talking about things like the Postal Bank. All the main and Senate candidates turned up to that, including George Christensen, Campbell Newman, um, uh, what's his name, the, the, the billionaire bloviator. Clive Palmer. Uh, Clive Palmer. Um, talked, a lot of, talked a lot of crap about the Citizens Party, Clive Palmer and this narcissistic little punk Drew Pavlou both accused us of being funded by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, that's, which is a lie. We've covered all this before. That, that you know, that this is just the kind of McCarthyite hysteria. But the fact they can't, they they ganged up to um, attack Jan in that way, mm. uh, Elisa, uh, underscores one thing, right? That we are the only party that has resisted this foreign-directed shift in our foreign policy. These people have all bowed the knee to it, so they're attacking the only party that doesn't. But anyway, it was, it was um, Jan more than handled herself and uh, got a, the, the audience was very much supportive mm. of the post office bank idea. And many people coming up to talk to her afterwards about it. Um, and I'll put up another um, image here. This is coverage in the Shepparton News from our candidate Jeff Davey here in Victoria. Uh, and 
uh, he was speaking at this Greater Shepparton Forum and the coverage in this article here stated, uh, we think this is great, uh, it didn't matter what the question was, First Nations, rights, climate change, anything, Mr Davey kept bringing his answers back to his calls for a complete reform of the banking and financial sector. Uh, he called for it to return to John Curtin era credit policies and spoke glowingly of reforms made by Alexander Hamilton in the United States' formative years. Mr Davey did say what was wrong with the current financial system, which he said was on the verge of collapse due to debt. Um, and it does all come back to the post, the, the national bank slash post office bank idea, because our policy there is a structural reform. It's all about a, 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 um, a pu getting public credit into the important parts of the economy, and that unless you get that right, the rest of the economy and the financial and the, the political system won't work. And that's why we're in this crisis. So. Jeff was right on that and it was good coverage. Last Friday night, uh, Senate candidates in New South Wales, Kingsley Liu and Anne Lawler, spoke or were at present at and introduced at a Chinese-Australian forum. They weren't on the podium, the major parties were. Uh, but Anne did get in the last question of the night, um, which really got everyone going. She asked which of the parties would advocate for Australia to have our own independent foreign policy and to stop being lapdogs to the US and UK. <laughs> so that got a fair reaction, but including people coming up afterwards and thanking her for saying what was on everyone's minds. And the two lapdogs that were there from the Labor Party and the Liberal Party scratched, them, scratched the fleas off their neck, chewed at their, at their collar that's holding them by the chain to the United States and the United Kingdom and said, we do have an independent foreign policy. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the actual audience knew that the, import the question was very, very important. And just to highlight uh, another rally by Sterling First victims in Western Australia, which got onto the Channel 7 News, nightly news over there in Perth, and uh, d with WA Senate candidate Denise Braley uh, having a quick grab there from part of an interview that and, she did. And we should have a quick look at that now. Yeah. Elderly victims of the failed Sterling First investment scheme have rallied at Elizabeth Quay. They're angry they still haven't been compensated three years on from when the Rent for Life scheme went bust. They're getting older and 20 have died so far in the last two years. It's 20 funerals. No one's got their money back yet. A parliamentary inquiry found the corporate watchdog ASIC was negligent in its handling of the rort. Now, I just wanted to also remind people that next Wednesday uh, night, the uh, 18th of May at 7.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, we have the final live stream where all of our candidates will be there to answer questions. So you can send questions into the email on the screen. But tune in and also call us, contact us if you can support your candidates in the next um, remaining days of the election yep. campaign and get involved in some way. I want to make a pitch now, a pre-election pitch, because this will be our last show that will be available before the election. Um, why should you vote for the Citizens Party? Well, you should vote for us if you support our policies, of course, like the Post Office Bank, um, or uh, what we're doing to be the only party, literally the only party in Australia, resisting this sudden turn that's put us on a pathway towards war with China, right? We're the only party resisting that. But understand, if you vote for the Citizens Party, I think regular viewers of the show especially will appreciate, you, I hope you have a sense we know what we're talking about. We put out a weekly 20-page magazine. What we cover in this show is covered in depth in that magazine. You, we're in an era where people say, do your own research. You have no idea how much research we do. And it's not just scanning Facebook, right? We've, we've done in-depth research in our policies for 30 years. So ask yourself, why, why are we the, the most significant minor party in Australia that nobody ever talks about? 
Nobody. Because years ago, the policy taken by the establishment towards the Citizens Party was to black us out. Don't give them any oxygen. Um, Ron Bosler, I remember, at least from the 90s, used to say in Parliament, he would, say, he would warn the Parliament, listen, you think we've got a problem with One Nation. Mm. There's a worse party out there than One Nation that would be disruptive. And, and the reason, he was referring to us, because we, we don't just have vague opinions off the top of our head. We have prepared policies that will totally disrupt the way the, mm. the two major parties have sold out to the banks. Just so, to say, Boswell was a National Party candidate at a time when they were the third, considered the um, third major party. No, exactly. So if the p major parties see a vote going to the Citizens Party, the party that tried to malign as on the fringe for all these years, if they see our vote going up over these issues, over these issues of a post office bank or over these issues of resisting war with China, it'll be a shot across their bow, right? They will get the message, oh my goodness, that what, what we've tried to contain all those years with our friends in the media blacking out the Citizens Party, that they're breaking loose, they're breaking out of containment. Right. That's what your that's your your vote for us is a very, very powerful message to the political establishment, the two party, you know, uh, power sharing arrangement in Australia. And what will happen is the more decent people inside those parties, one of them, some of them will start to say, hey, we better start taking up those policy solutions ourselves. This is how you can affect change even when you don't get elected. That's mm. what a vote for the Citizens Party can do. So use it. Spread the word, get other people to vote for the Citizens Party and let's see what happens on Election Day. Right, so on to our first topic, read it and weep. What Morrison's bastardry has cost all Australians. And just by way of introduction to this topic, I wanted to reference some of the worsening uh, reports of the cost of living crisis and the threat that Morrison and others are posing um, to our economy if policies don't change. Well, we're going to talk about Christine Holgate, but... One of, the, this is, one of the things she's doing in her new job is, is in the context of this inflation stuff, which yeah. is fascinating the way she's approached it. And, and we want people to get that sense of it um, so they can really appreciate what she's doing and therefore what we've lost to Australia's public service because she used to be someone who worked for us mm. because of Morrison's bastardry. Now, in terms of inflation, one of the paradoxes that's hitting some people and even the media at the moment is that with interest rates going up, and housing prices, you know, likely coming down as a result of that, that's not actually going to improve the situation regarding inflation. And in fact, housing affordability is set to get worse. There's a demographia survey that's just come out that shows that the median house price is 15 times median income. And we'll put the graph up that you can see. In, in Sydney. Sydney is the worst, which is over 15, just slightly over 15. And then the others are not far behind. And this report puts Sydney as the second most unaffordable city in the world. And bear in mind, Elisa, the historic, until this era, this last two decades of a property bubble in Australia, the historical average for a century was three to four times. Mm. Sydney median is now 15 times. Yeah, and Melbourne's now the fifth most unaffordable city in the world. Uh, in an ABC article on the 12th of May, Nassim Kadem wrote, it takes a first home buyer almost 11.5 years now to save a 20% deposit for an average priced home. So the house is going to cost 15 years worth of your income if you devoted every cent of your income to it but it's going to take 11 and a half years for you to save the deposit to get the house 
locked onto your your debt for the rest of your life lifetime in the first place. Um, and this is a record high, taking that number of years to save your deposit, according to a CoreLogic housing affordability report that's just come out. Um, and referencing the same report, the Australian Financial Review said that houses are unlikely to become more affordable, even if values of houses were to fall by up to 20%, as higher mortgage rates will wipe out any benefit gained from lower prices. And, you know, so you have the problem with um, all of these costs and inflation pressures increasing, but wages are not keeping up with that. And that's been going on for a while, but it's about to get worse. Now, of course, we all saw the freak out this week when um, opposition leader Albanese tried to suggest that we could keep wages to have the key min- pays the with minimum inflation. Wage, he said the minimum wage should rise at the same rate as inflation, the minimum wage. And in the debate they had the other night, Morrison had this big to-do about how businesses can't afford that. Now, sure, in the current environment that is true, but it just shows that they are completely and utterly unwilling to change the system, to challenge the assumptions that have caused that situation, to shift the economy out of the depression condition, which is going to increasingly involve more austerity, hitting the people even harder. You know, for instance, there's... We should, just before you go on, sorry, we should clarify. It's true for a lot of small businesses. When Morrison says it's true, when Morrison says business can't afford it, though, he's always... He, the Liberal Party are scammers. They tell small business, this is what we do for you, but everything they deliver is for big business. It is not true for big business, right? No. Pro- corporations are raking in the profits. What happens is every time, that, you know, they just don't want, they just don't want um, to have to share that <laughs> with their workers. Now, there's other ways to bring down costs, I wanted to note. When we, you wrote an article the other day, the other week for the Australian Alert Service about how John Howard signed us up to, yeah. we spoke about it on the show two weeks ago, he signed us up to international parity on oil and fuel prices because it was the ideological thing to do, yeah. even though we could produce it much more cheaply. And yet, you know, what they did the other day to take some of the tax, uh, the excise off of fuel prices has not really had any kind of impact at all because that excise cut has been absorbed by transport companies picking up the cost and uh, the benefit to consumers therefore is being wiped out by the increased cost of transport which what is we're seeing the shops, yeah. Yeah, in the, on the grocery shelves. Um, other things that could change that would change that dynamic that um, Morrison has referenced is Low, lower long-term interest rate credit being provided by banks into the real economy as opposed to putting it all into the housing bubble that they're doing now. And that can happen with national banking, postal banking. Uh, and additionally, funding of, at a government level, national credit into infrastructure, creating a boom in the economy and transforming the situation which, within which all businesses yep. are operating. You want to if, if if you want to uh, if you're in Sydney, for instance, you want to reduce costs, um, nationalise the toll roads, take the tolls off them. Mm, yeah. That'll reduce costs. These things are these things were built first and foremost so Macquarie Bank, not so that people could drive on them, so Macquarie Bank could make a mozza. And the Macquarie executives bragged they're a license to print money. And now the Dominic Perrottet government, instead of talking talking about reducing the tolls, is saying they're going to put on a congestion tax in Sydney, mm. right? No, there is, instead of thinking about the things that make prices go up, invest in the long-term things and infrastructure is the best 
because it makes everything more efficient and prices come down. Now let's take a case example, case in point. This is where we're coming to Christine Holgate and her way of looking at things which is completely opposed to that, you know, locking yourself into a certain systemic way of doing it. So we're, this is coming out of an Australian article on the 9th of May by Tiki Fulton, um, which we'll put up on the screen there. Um, so just, let me remind the viewers, uh, Elisa, as you go through this, viewer, remember, this woman worked for us at Australia Post. Yep. And what we didn't know, because you don't know what you've got till it's gone, we didn't know until we started paying attention because of what Scott Morrison did to her, what the LP at Licensed Post Office Group knew. She was the best CEO of Australia Post ever had. She was transforming the place. Now look at what she's doing with Global Express and to really appreciate what we've lost. So, yeah, she's working at Toll Global Express and um, the article stated that Christine Holgate is confident to see her employees' wages growing as fast as inflation, meaning, you know, around a 6% rise. Uh, it says Holgate believes the company's growth and productivity can match the rise in labour costs. If she is right, Toll Global Express is a rare breed of business in 2022. That's, t that's Tiki Fullerton's quote, no, um, comment. Mm. It's a rare breed of business. Tiki Fullerton's hearing Christine saying this and saying, my God, every other business executive I'm talking to is saying, how can we screw the yeah, workers exactly. down, right? You're saying you're going to give them a 6% pay rise. Mm, and happy to because she knows the impact it will have. Um, she goes on to say, if you are not keeping pace with inflation for your employees, you're going to have a bigger issue. There is a labour shortage. People are going to leave and go and work for somebody else. But the platform that she's referencing that would allow her to happily do this is that from two years ago when this company had made a $140 million loss, she's now turned that into the positive, into the black. It's now making profit. Um, she has streamlined things, setting up the company for productivity games in terms of a lot of the infrastructure in the, the transport network, logistics. She... Um, a lot of the uh, credit management operations were outsourced to India and she reshored it all, brought it all back home. She said, this is what she said, how she put it, we got the keys on September 1. Day 3, we put it to the board that we wanted to bring all our frontline services home. We had no idea what it was going to cost. We just knew we had to do it. Now it is being set up in Melbourne. That's how quickly you can move. And she did that because just like... It's so similar to what she did at Australia Post. When she, when she took over Australia Post, she sat down with the, with the, the, the workers, right, including the licensed post office. She said to the licensed post office, what's your biggest pain? And they said banking. And she said, right, we're going to fix it. In this case, she said to the Global Express workers, where do you get the most grief? And they said, people calling us up and abusing us because they've got to be on the line forever to India. And she said, right, we're going to fix it. And how many Australians have been that person calling mm. up and abusing a, a, you know, not, and you don't want to do it. You get so frustrated at this, this offshoring of, of these call centres, right? Christine did it because she knows that the people she wants working for her, she doesn't want them to go through that, mm. right? And so they brought it back on shore. And she removed other levels of bureaucracy, including where um, she cited cases where one employee to backfill a job that needed filling urgently had to get 23 signatures of superiors in order to hire that person, but still didn't get the go-ahead. So she's now made it so that you only have to get your one-up manager to sign off on it. Um, and she's suggesting these wage increases at a time when she's also added extra parental leave, extra super allocations for unpaid parental leave, domestic violence leave. So there's a whole host of changes and you just see a completely different way of looking at the situation top down, which if 
our government was functioning in such a way, how different would it be? <laughs> well, we used to say this when we talked about Australia Post more regularly last year, Elisa, I want to say it again. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. You can be the biggest communist, which we were called this, this week, by the way, Citizens Party supposedly communist. You can be the biggest communist who believe the government should own everything. Or you can be the biggest libertarian fantasist, um, baby with a dummy in your mouth, who doesn't believe government should exist at all. I don't care where you are, there will always be government. So if we can accept there will always be government, don't you want it to be run by competent people? It's got to be there, whether you think it's a, a blessing or a necessary evil. It's going to be there. Shouldn't it be run by the most competent people? And we had, for three years, at Australia Post, something that we know we all need. It is a, it, this affects literally every single Australian. It is an essential service for all Australians. We now know we had this person in that job. And she was running it and she was transforming it and she was turning around a mess against the political pressure of snakes on the board who are Liberal Party stacked, stacked by the Liberal Party, whose entire agenda was to privatise it and sell it off from under our feet. We wouldn't have that anymore. That's what she was combating and she was turning it mm. around. And she wanted to turn it into a postal bank. And because, exactly. She saw that, hang on, the future of this is a post office bank. And in mm. fact, this week... Um, a very important blog called Pearls and Irritations, which is run by John Menninger, who's the former Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet in Australia. And then he became the Chief Executive of Qantas and he was Ambassador to Japan. He's a very well-connected guy. He has this blog um, that is read by a lot of people in government and ex-government. Um, and that they ran an article written by me about how the licensed post office group who were Christine Holgate's biggest fans, have called for a post office bank for this election, right? So, um, you know, this is, they got that idea because Christine had this idea that that is the future of post offices in Australia, combine it with combined postal services and, and banking services. And that's what she was doing. And so two years after she emotionally awarded four executives who saved banking services in Australia... They saved them two years after she did that because she gave them a $5,000 watch, which is a cheap Cartier watch. You can pay $500,000 for them if you want to, right? Unsavoury politicians decided to string her up in Parliament. And this Prime Minister, who I think I regard as the most despicable Prime Minister in our history, not for this, but for everything he's done, but this was one of them, got up there, stripped this woman bear in front of the whole country in terms of you know, assassinating her character and pontificated, she can go. Well, she has gone, Prime Minister, and now she's running Global Express, the main competitor for Australia Post, and she's running it damn well, and she could have been still working for the Australian people. And I can tell you, direct feedback, Elisa, the licensed post office group, um, the, the, the people who run, out, the small business people who run Australia's post offices, they are back to facing an uncertain future. They're losing their sleep at night because they don't know what the future holds with this current dysfunctional board of Australia Post. And to them, it's like paradise lost. They had her mm. and now she's gone, right? All because of the bastardry of this Prime Minister. So if I wasn't political and I just heard about this, this would be the number one issue I voted on, mm. right? He can go. Yep. Goodbye. All right, next topic. Solomon's now a regime change target. Now, you interviewed uh, retired senior diplomat John Lander a 
a week or so ago, I think it was. Um, and he made a very stark warning, people who haven't watched it should go and have a look, um, that Australia could be the fuse for a war in the Pacific region and might perhaps be a more likely proxy for a war against China even than Taiwan. I mean, what, what John Lander said in that interview, Elisa, should terrify everybody because you don't like to think... The reason, the reason wars happen is there's only, there's only ever a tiny minority who actually want them, a tiny, tiny minority mm. of plotters. The majority of people allow themselves to be sleepwalked into it, yeah. right? Because they don't think it's going to happen. So when you've got a warning like this from someone as experienced as John Lander, who knows uh, China as well as he does, right, people should take stock. But what he's actually saying is he's turning it on its head. There was always an assumption that Taiwan will be the trigger for a war with China. And he said to me in that interview, and people should watch it, you know, look, if you're on our channel, look at the things below. There's um, the interview that we put up last Monday, and then, and then there's a second um, shorter thing, which is a speech that John just gave to a, a church um, in Melbourne on a similar subject. But in, with my interview, he elaborates more. He's saying, look, the Taiwanese, they're, they're, their economy is so intertwined with China, because Taiwan is China. They're all, they all speak the same language, etc. You know, it's very unlikely that, like, the pragmatism may may come, may um, win the day in Taiwan, and they don't go and do the ultimate provocation, which is declare independence. But it, then he contrasted that to our politicians in Australia, and what the way our politicians have been talking about the Solomon Islands, he said mm. we are they're on track to turn our reaction to the Solomon Islands into the trigger for war. Yeah. Right. So, so we've been at this long enough to recognise when you get a certain drum beat, the pedal point of which is yeah. the Solomon, 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 so Guevara, and we'll put up some headlines um, in a moment so that you can see what how this is building. But this is stemming from um, on the 14th of April when Scott Morrison said that he shared the same red line as the United States. We won't have Chinese military naval bases in our region on our doorstep. On the 22nd of April, a week later, the White House put out a press release stating that if steps are taken to establish a de facto permanent military presence, power projection capabilities or a military installation, the delegation noted that the United States would then have significant concerns and respond accordingly. And in The Guardian on the 26th of April, a few days later, US Assistant Secretary of State Daniel Kuttenbrick was quoted saying he refused to rule out use of military force against the Solomon Islands. And what we saw, which you just alluded to, is as soon as this, these statements started to be made, a stream of negative coverage in the Australian press mm. aimed at the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, Sogavari. We're being told he's corrupt, we're being mm. told he's, he's in the pockets of Beijing, etc. And there's one purpose for this, it's called manufacturing consent. Yeah. And that's why we're calling this out now. They are softening us up for some kind of either um, internally or externally uh, triggered internal uprising against Savari, Sogavari, or external uh, intervention to overthrow this guy. This is how regime change works. We're seeing the very beginnings of it. Yeah, so, so this evil rogue has to be ousted. And, yes. You know, it's little by little getting you know, more and more stark. And all the Australians will go, oh boy, good, glad, good, good thing we got rid of him. Yeah. Um, but just listen to Sogavare's response after what I just went through from coming from the US and from Morrison. So this is just a little clip of what he had to say on the 29th of April and he's talking about how 
Australia signed up to the AUKUS agreement, the Australia-UK-US agreement, uh, without saying anything to their Pacific neighbours about it. Um, and he points to the hypocrisy. So we'll just run this one-minute clip. I learned of the AUKUS Treaty in the media, Mr. Speaker, one would expect that as a member of the Pacific family, Solomon Islands or members of the Pacific should have been consulted to ensure that this AUKUS Treaty is transparent since it will affect the Pacific family by allowing nuclear submarine in Pacific waters. Oh, but I realize, Mr. Speaker, that Australia is a sovereign country and that it can enter into any treaty that it wants to, transparently or not, which is exactly what they did with AUKUS Treaty, Mr. Speaker. So, I was bewildered, Mr. Speaker, when Solomon Islands signed this treaty with, the, with, with China, we were accused by the Western media of not being transparent and being secretive. Mr. Speaker, we are a sovereign nation and we did not answer to the Western media, Mr. Speaker. So, yeah, there's just blatant hypocrisy. Um, you know, you can do whatever you want without telling us, but when sarcasm. it comes to us... I love yeah. his sarcasm. Oh, yeah, we did, they didn't consult us over AUKUS, but as it turns out, they're a sovereign country. So they're not really obliged to consult us over AUKUS. Well, guess what, Aussies? So are we. Yeah. Now, he got even more fired up in a speech on the 3rd of May, also in the Parliament, which we don't have the video for, but just to quote us a little bit of it, he said, We deplore the continual demonstration of lack of trust by the concerned parties and tacit warning of military intervention in Solomon Islands if their national interest is undermined. In other words, we are threatened with invasion. What is more insulting, Mr Speaker, in this attitude and therefore totally unacceptable is we are being treated as kindergarten students walking around with Colt 45s in our hands and therefore we need to be supervised. Uh, he went on to say that we should stop, Australia should stop referring to them as our smaller neighbours as part of a property where, quote, rubbish is collected and burned and where we relieve ourselves. I call on those people who brand us as their backyard to stop calling us that name and start to respect us as a sovereign, independent nation with one equal vote in the United Nations. And he then attacked the hypocrisy of Western countries proclaiming their Christian values, but that have waged, quote, some of the bloodiest wars in the history of our planet. What, what, what that speech shows is that he's had it. Yeah. He's had it up here with the hypocrisy and BS from Australia, um, a bit from New Zealand as well, and he's, he's calling it out. But the, and, the, and the stinging one is, yeah, we just call them, oh, they're our backyard, so we get to decide what happens there. And he says, no, the backyard is where you, is where you go to the toilet and, and burn your rubbish. How dare you refer to us that way? Mm. And they've just um, announced further uh, draft agreements with China on Belt and Road Cooperation, which will make um, the Aussies and the Yanks even more unhappy because it involves de development and exploration of resources and all kinds of infrastructure. Um, well, so I think the details, I mean, people need to understand, you know, because the, the, the deal with China, the Belt and Road deal with China, is in contrast to what we, what we offer them. You know what we offer the Solomon Islands? 3,000 of them can come here a year and pick our fruit and send that money, work in the hot sun yeah. and send that money back to their relatives there, right? 
and that's us being good to them, right? So it's kind of like a um, the 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 what, what do they call it? the the Kanaka trade, but with a bit of a mm. with a bit of payment this time. Whereas the Chinese are saying, okay, you're not called the Solomon Islands for nothing. Mm. You've got all this wealth. Um, the other powers don't want you to develop that wealth, mm -hmm. but let's do deals. Let's 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 invest in fisheries. Let's invest in in mining, etc. You guys have got plenty of work to do here in mm. the Solomon Islands, yep. right? And it's a far better deal for the Solomons, well, and they've taken it. Well, Morrison had the hide even to, you know, they considered suspending the Pacific Workers Program, and it's they now have it as a hanging threat over the Solomons. We'll cut this off if you don't X, Y, Z. But speaking of the Belt and Road and how that has been built up as a threat to countries like us that don't want these countries to develop themselves... Yep. We want to talk about an article that's in also this week's Australian Alert Service by Melissa Harrison. Um, and cites at the outset a 21st April uh, Australian editorial which claims that China had obtained a geopolitical stronghold over the Solomons through the Belt and Road and that China seeks to suborn other similarly corrupt and vulnerable Pacific Island states into falling for Beijing's self-serving debt trap diplomacy. Now this article is about the origins of that idea that the Belt and Road is debt trap diplomacy. It's a fabricated narrative. It started in 2017. The idea is that China deliberately traps countries in debt so it can then move in to extend control, which is historically uh, the way that the Paris Club, the Western countries have operated. The IMF and World Bank took over that kind of role, largely. We, had, we have had decades and decades of the IMF um, intervening in impoverished countries right, who couldn't pay their debts and saying, OK, we'll lend, we'll lend you a loan. Here's a loan, but here's the conditions on the loan. And the conditions have forced those countries to reform their economies, which mm. means deregulation and privatisation. They've had to sell their assets to corporations, multinational corporations owned and operating out of the city of London and Wall Street and the banks, right? And those countries, in economic terms, become yep. colonies yep. for the city of London and Wall Street. That is, we've had decades and decades and decades of actual debt trap through the yeah. IMF. And, and the same people have done that. Sorry. I was just going to say, it's the same thing in Australia too. You know, all this talk about, oh, we've got so much debt we can't spend any money. I mean, that's it's what yep. the IMF saying to Sri Lanka at the moment. You know, oh, you've got all this debt. How dare you even consider spending any money on developing your economy, which is the only way the country would ever make money to pay the debt. So it's complete furphy. No, it is. We had the big, the greatest debt in Australian history, Elisa, was at the end of World War II. It, it, it peaked at 140% of GDP in 1948. And what did we do? We embarked on the single biggest infrastructure project in our history, which costs the equivalent of 15% of GDP, which would be a $300 billion project today. Just imagine with all our debt today, we said, OK, we're going to build a $300 billion project. That's what the Snowy Mountains was equivalent, right? Um, and we did it. Mm. And by the time we finished the 25 years it took to build that project, by the end of it, we were effectively debt-free as a country because that, pro that investment had allowed mm. us to expand our economy so much, right? Yep. Now, this debt trap diplomacy, though, comes back to its credit. The idea is credited to this Indian academic who's a he works with various other think tanks, but in New Delhi in particular, the Center for Policy Research. His name's Professor Brahma Chalani. He wrote an article in January 2017 in Project Syndicate launching this idea. It was published in partnership with ASPI, um, which 
Cellini contributes to and has over a long term. That's the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Yeah, and some people actually say he coined the term for Aspie. Yes. Um, in early 2018, following upon, you know, those 20... So the 2017, he started having the, all the talk about debt trap diplomacy. But by early 2018, uh, this article came out in the 2018 Australian Financial Review, US report China debt trap on Australia's doorstep. And it cited a report that particularly went through Southeast Asian, Pacific Island nations, Sri Lanka and all these debt traps on our borders. It referenced a report from Harvard's Belfer Centre, which is a, one of these prestigious think tanks at Harvard University. Uh, Kurt Campbell, who came up with the idea of the Asia Pivot, who's the Indo-Pacific National Security Coordinator in Biden's administration, is a senior fellow in this outfit. So they presented this report called Debt Book Diplomacy, and you'll see the whole title up on the screen, to the US State Department. It was written by students under the supervision of former US Assistant Secretary of Defence, Professor Graham Allison, who was also a protege of Henry Kissinger. Um, and in a 2017 in interview with Kissinger, Kissinger explicitly said to Allison that he was very worried about One Belt, One Road, as the BRI was then called. He said, because we can't stop it, because it's not a military plan. <laughs> it organically links territories through infrastructure. In other words, this is such a... Um, you know, people are so happy and countries are so keen on this, how can we explicitly come out against it? Yep. So in other words, they had to invent this debt de diplomacy idea to say, oh, no, they're just suckering you in. And I just want to quote a little bit from this uh, debt book diplomacy and then you can give your comment. Since World War II, it says the US has enjoyed effectively unchallenged US economic and military dominance in the Pacific, buttressed by a strong alliance system and an unparalleled basing network to support American power projection. But China's rise is upending that favourable landscape. China's loans undermine the US ability to use its own economic assistance to promote US security objectives. And it goes on to say that if Southeast Asian and Pacific Island countries were to turn to China, this could undermine US strategic denial and exclusive military basing rights, eroding US advantage in any future US-China conflict. And it also goes on to admit, stunningly, that the US in its Wall Street-dominated economy can't match China's economy with state investment banking. It says the US cannot offer public-private investment at anywhere near the scale of Chinese Belt and Road funding. And it even admits, um, most pointedly, that the US lacks the will and the resources to remotely challenge the massive scale of Chinese BRI investment. And right there is the, is the admission that's the nub of the problem. So in 1992, the United States adopted a strategic doctrine that's known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which basically says... There will, we will never accept a rival military or economic power. There will be, we'll, there will be you know, because this was post-Cold War, right, post the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. The, the, the world being divided, you know, where America had to compete with the Soviet Union was gone. Um, and they said, okay, it's going to be a unipolar world, not a bipolar world, a unipolar world, and that's it. We'll never go back to that again. We have to be top dog, always. Now, the problem is they're now cashing checks writing checks they can't cash because their economy cannot match China's. While America spent more than 20 years bankrupting itself fighting evil wars all over the world, the Chinese massively developed their economy, 
right? And now they are kicking, that admission is, we cannot match them. So then what do they do? Because they still have this doctrine, well, we, we cannot have a, a um, we're not going to share uh, you know, power in that sense. And it's not about sharing power. It's just understanding that America has to understand that there's a multipolar world now. It is not the top dog. And it needs to, it should get together with China, with Russia, with India, the other big powers, and, and, and work out a cooperative arrangement among them that's mutually beneficial. And the whole world will benefit from that. That's what mm-hmm. we've, been, we've been saying for years. But so those previous paragraphs, Elisa, what they actually reveal is what the propaganda of Belt, Belt and Road is all about and, and the Solomon Islands. Because they're saying that America, they're admitting America used its foreign aid um, to impose conditions on recipients. You get our aid, you've got to do what's in our interest. In fact, John Bolton said that. We'll, we will never give aid to anybody unless it's in our interest to do so. One of those, in, America believes that it's on top of the world militarily because it has 800 bases around the place. Right, that from which you can project power. And it is saying here, Chinese loans undermine all that. Um, if Asia, Southeast Asian and Pacific Island countries were to turn to China, this could undermine US strategic denial and exclusive basing rights. Because if China's got a, if Solomon's got a better deal with China and America one day said, well, we want to have a base in, in the Solomons, the Solomons are going, well, no, we don't really want you to have a base here, mate. Right? And other countries with, which have bases might say... We'd prefer you to move your base now, America, right? Because we prefer to have a peaceful economic relationship with China than a, than a military relationship with you that actually creates a threat in the region. So it's not, it's not actually China is a threat to America. China's good business is impinging, hindering America's ability to, to continue in perpetuity to project its power through these military bases. So what America's had to do is say, okay, we have to turn that on its head and present China as a threat. Mm. And the, most, the, the, the only good thing I can say is we're a, we're a minority voice in Australia. We are saying this forcefully and we always will. And so a lot of our viewers will make comments underneath and please do, right? If you disagree with us, fine. But, and you'll be in the majority of Australians if you do, right? However, you're not in the majority of the world. The majority of the world is seeing this through China's eyes, not through the United States' mm. eyes. And if we want to keep going down the path we're going, instead of, instead of speaking frankly to our big ally, we will assist them in sparking a war, and a totally unnecessary war, when we should be saying, look, the reality is the whole world needs to get together and, and work out a way to collaborate. America, you sit down with China, Russia, India... You work out a collaborative system, but you've got to drop the idea that you have to be the top dog. Mm. And only then will we have a pathway to real peace. Yeah. And the real tragedy for Australia is you see, you know, countries like the Solomons having their development suppressed as part of this geopolitical design. Australia is voluntarily yeah. suppressing our potential development because we're part of, we've agreed to be a part of that pact. Except that- breaking news today is that the, the US Defence Department has asked the Congress to authorise money for the US Defence Department to mine in Australia. It, US military mines mining our resources in Australia. Because they need... And you worried about China taking our sovereignty. We don't have any people. Mm. It's all gone. America and Britain own all of us. They control our banks. They control our mining companies. 
We've gone through this in recent times and now they're about to start mining here directly and you're worried that because some stupid government Northern Territory privatised a port which nobody can take away and can be, like the, like, like the Russian assets, can be nationalised in a heartbeat if there was a real concept, that means that China's a threat to our sovereignty. No, China's not a threat to a sovereignty of a country that doesn't have any. <laughs> now, before your blood pressure goes up too much, I think that's all okay. that we've, we've pretty much run through the topics for today's show. So, um, Well, let, let's get this debate happening in the Australian Senate. All right. Yeah. We we want to have you don't you do not want a, a, an Australian Parliament where everybody bows the knee to this foreign power that's dictated this to Australia, which is the Anglo-American powers. So, if you want to see um, a real debate on this, vote for the Citizens yeah. Party. Get him into the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be fun. Um, now, call in for a copy of the Australian Alert Service to find out more info. There's numbers there that you can contact us to get involved and be sure to tune in next Wednesday, the 18th of May, 7.30 Australian Eastern Time for our final live cast for the election campaign. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Lisa. See you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party Melbourne.